0: Well, I said it last week that we're, we're going to take a break from Matthew for a little bit. We're going to come back, of course, to finish up Matthew, but we're going to take a break. The elders uh, and I have agreed to take a break and to start a series which really will be oriented around the idea of church membership. Um, I believe that the, uh, the, the scriptures teach church membership. We believe it is an neglected doctrine, and we believe it is important Where we're going to start this morning is asking the question, what is the church? Before we can talk about church membership, we need to understand, well, what is the church? What's the nature of the church? But you might be asking a question, and that is, why do we need to talk about the church? Uh, why, Why do we need to talk about the church? I mean, we can talk about Jesus, we can talk about our salvation, and we should, and we ought to, but why do we need to talk about the church? Well, I want to present for you a couple reasons why this is necessary for us to talk about especially where we're at in history you see the doctrine of the church has been neglected especially in the US over the last couple centuries really this began and you can you can there are several authors who do a good job of unfolding uh, what has happened over the last couple years a uh, couple hundred years but you can even think back a couple hundred years to The beginnings of revival in the U.S., even back to to Whitfield and to Edwards, but then even into the 19th century talking uh, the second great awakening and the camp meetings and the revivals, and you're like, well weren't those things good? Didn't a lot of people come to know the Lord? Well indeed they did, and we praise the Lord for that, but we see even with camp meetings, with revivals, even into our own century with things like crusades, people were saved through that, but they didn't get connected to the church. And they weren't discipled and they didn't grow. You can look also at the rise of parachurch organizations that have taken on a great deal of functions that Jesus himself gives to the church. And so all of those things kind of coalesced over the last couple hundred years and especially over the last century, and it has greatly harmed the church. And for evidence of that, we need, we've said it many times, but you don't have to look any farther than the pandemic. Uh, I don't know the total statistics of who has stopped going to church, but the the percentages I've heard across the board in the country have been somewhere around 25% will never come back to church from the pandemic. And, you know, in a sense, the reason is obvious. Well, I can sit at home, I can watch the live stream, I can listen to the same sermons, I can hear the same music. Why do I need to go to church? And the reason for that is is because we've lost, uh, in a great measure, a lot of understanding of the church, what it is, how it fits into God's program. But there's another reason why we need to talk about the church, and this one you can readily identify with. Uh, Ashley and I read through a, I'll call it a good book, but it's a hard book to read. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by a gentleman named Carl Truman. It's, it's a good book, and I would recommend it, though you're not going to feel good after you read it. It's not that kind of book. Um, but it is good. It's, it's 400 or so, uh, maybe close on 400 pages or so of analysis, really good analysis of what happened over the last 200 or so years, such that it makes sense in our culture to say, I'm a woman trapped inside a man's body. And really the lead up to that is not just the last decade or the last few decades, it's a couple hundred of years of thought and thinking that has led to this cultural moment. You see, what Truman points out, he points out that what we are now is a culture of autonomous individuals. That is the triumph, that's, that's what's triumphed out of this couple hundred year run up of now the individual is the king the autonomous individual. But that goes along with another triumph, the triumph of the therapeutic, that what's good, what's morally good, is what makes me feel good, what makes me feel better about myself. Or on reverse of that, uh, what makes me feel bad or makes me feel a sense of harm to my well-being, that's what's evil. It's not just bad, oh, I feel bad, but it's evil. Whatever makes me feel bad is evil. And then that gets connected with what we're seeing in our country, and we have seen it over the last few years. It gets filtered through the language of oppression. If you make me feel bad, then you're oppressing me. It's the language of cultural Marxism, that now, uh, if you make me feel bad, you've harmed my therapeutic sense of self, my autonomous individual, then you're the oppressor. And not, it's, and not only that, it's coupled with what Truman points out. He calls it emotivism, which is this, what I feel is true. And if you don't agree with what I feel, then you're a bigot. And you can't even talk to the person. You you must think uh, that way. If you're harming my sense of self-well-being, if you, you confront me on that, well, that's only because of irrational animus and bigotry. There's no... Way that you can have a a reasonable discussion with someone like that. And what's beginning to happen, and you see it already, is that the new rights of the autonomous individual are going to trump religious rights. Because religion is going to be seen and calling for repentance, calling for faith, calling for conversion is going to be called oppression, it's going to be called evil because you're harming the individual sense of self. If you don't believe me, Canada has passed uh, a law, goes into effect on the 8th, that makes talking about someone who, you know, whether it's uh, transgenderism or whether it's um, LGBTQ plus issues, all those issues, talking to someone and calling them and say, you know, you actually need to repent and turn from that, that's sin. That is a criminal offense that will get you jail time. And in fact, uh, I don't know if some, some of you might have seen it, uh, John MacArthur sent out a, a link, a letter, uh, where a lot of these Canadian pastors have written in and described the situation, and the Canadian, a lot of these Canadian pastors who are faithful to the word have banded together and say, on the 16th of January, we are going to preach against these sexual sins that are in our culture, and they're doing so knowing full well that it is illegal, but it is what God would have them to do. MacArthur called on the churches in the U.S. to do the same. We won't necessarily preach on that on that Sunday, but we, we stand with those Canadian brothers in that. But it all shows, uh, why do I bring all of this up? Well, it's because even in all of this, where the individual is king it's still paradoxically the case, and this has always been the case, that the individual finds their identity through their community. The individual finds their identity through their community. And so it used to be that the church or school was about shaping the individual, about transforming the individual, and about that individual fitting in society. But now what has happened is the society is still important, but it's reversed, where Instead of the the group, the community shaping the individual, now the group is a platform for the individual to perform. A platform. So whether it's school or the church, it's about the individual and about the individual's needs being met and the individual having a platform for themselves, to promote themselves. And that's where we get the cry today that the individual not just be tolerated, but celebrated. It's not enough to just say, well, what you're doing is wrong. I can't endorse it, but I can sort of coexist with you in a civil way in society. No, if I don't celebrate you, then I'm harming your identity. And so the individual still needs the greater society to celebrate the individuality, which is expressing itself, the expressive individual is expressing himself through all of these sexual and political ideologies. How do we stand against that? How do we move forward and not just survive, but thrive? And the answer is, I believe, the church. The church, because the church is designed to be the compelling community And the true political reality, the church is a political institution, as we'll talk about, it's a political reality of Jesus' future kingdom. The church is supposed to be the true counterculture of love and unity oriented around our Savior and King. The LGBTQ plus community, there's a great deal of acceptance and love and unity in that community. There's, There's that. There's community within that group. But over against that, the, true, the church needs to be the true counterculture of love and unity oriented around our Savior and King. And so what I'm calling you to do, and what the elders are calling for in this, is to find your identity in your local church, which is connected with the idea of church membership. Before, but before we talk more about that, we need to understand what is the church, what is it? So here's the big idea for this morning as we walk through a couple passages. Here's the big idea, and it's in your bulletin there. Love the universal and local church because Jesus does. Love the universal and local church because Jesus does. And so, what we want to talk about this morning, we're going to talk about what is the church, and we're going to break it down. What is the universal church? What is the local church? And it's kind of a bait and such. I said we're getting out of Matthew, but really we're still there because uh, Matthew 16, 30, uh, 13 through twenty is the foundational text for understanding what the nature of the universal church is. So we'll hit that passage hard, and then we'll bounce to a couple of others, and then we'll talk about the local church. So let's get started. What is the universal church? Look at Matthew sixteen thirteen now we've already seen enough of Matthew to kind of know uh, the beginning of the story, right? Jesus has been revealing his identity as king. He is the true king. He's the Messiah. He's calling Israel, God's people, God's assembly to repentance. But what you tend to see, and we're on the cusp of seeing it more and more in Matthew 9, and we'll see it more and more as we get through Matthew 10, 11, 12, we'll see an increase in opposition. We'll see an increase in opposition, and what ends up happening is Jesus kind of retreats He retreats more and more and more to the north before launching from this point in Matthew, launching back to his fulfilling his mission in Jerusalem. So he's way far north. Look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, that's way far north. That's basically the northern edge of the traditional boundaries of the promised land. And what you have to understand about Caesarea Philippi, it's a Gentile region. And what you also have to understand is there, there was temples and pagan worship galore. In fact, what's interesting, and actually uh, it feeds into what our text talks about, there was, and still is, you can see it, the headwaters of the Jordan were there, and Israel's highest mountain, Mount Hermon, it's, it's Israel's highest point. In fact, that's a good case for the, the Mount of Transfiguration happening there, which happens right after this in chapter 17. But what you see in Caesarea Philippi, there's this big old uh, cave that leads into the headwaters of the Jordan. And uh, Josephus, uh, kind of a contemporary historian of the apostles, records that the headwaters were so deep at this cave, it was known as the Gate of Hades, the entrance to the underworld, the entrance of death. But right next to you you had this opening in this cave, and then you had this big rock wall and a big slab of rock right there, And on this big slab of rock was temples and worship to all these different false gods. And this this is where Jesus and his disciples are. And in that context, he asks them this question. He asks his disciples, all of them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, you see that phrase, Son of Man. It's not just that Jesus is asking, who do people say that I am? He is asking that. But remember the Son of Man language. The Son of Man language draws us back to Daniel 7 with the divine human Son of Man who will be presented to, to the Ancient of Days to rule over a kingdom. And it won't just be for him, but the, his holy ones, his saints, in connection with him. But if you remember that from Daniel 7, you will also remember right before that, there's these four kingdoms, these four evil beasts that the Son of Man overcomes, and the saints overcome eventually. But if you remember that, you also remember that Daniel 7 ties back to Daniel 2 with this exact same imagery in well, different imagery, but portraying the same thing. This statue with these four kingdoms and this stone cut out by, not by human hands, comes and strikes this statue, which represents all these kingdoms of men. And then this stone grows into a mountain that fills the earth. It's a picture of God's kingdom and God's temple growing to fill the whole earth. And so even in that language of Son of Man, there's a lot of concepts behind that. But he asks his disciples, all of them, who who do people say that the Son of Man is? In verse 14, the disciples answer this, and they said, everyone's answering, probably one's popping up and another's popping up with an answer. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So that's the general conception, and we've seen that from the crowds. The crowds are happy to get miracles from Jesus, but they don't really get who he is, not yet. But notice how Jesus progresses. He said, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? The followers, the disciples, the ones that Jesus has called, they've been living with him, they've been hearing him teach, they've been instructed by him. They, they're the nearest ones. He asked that question to all the disciples and then look who, see who speaks up. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied. So Jesus asked a question to all of the disciples and Simon Peter, who's already been presented as the leader and spokesman for the group, speaks up probably on behalf of everyone and says this, you are the Christ. What does that mean? Uh, Remember, the idea of the Christ is the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7 talks about uh, the promise to David that he's going to set one of his sons on his throne forever. And not just over Israel, but over the whole world. It's the same person as the son of man. Those two become identified even in the Old Testament, but especially in the New Testament. And Peter has seen all the miracles. He's seen what Jesus claims for himself. He's heard his teaching, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, that language of the Son of God, we've said there's a functional uh, way of thinking of that term. Adam is the Son of God. Israel was the Son of God. And uh, the nation of Israel was the Son of God. David was called the Son of God. That's, that's a functional language to talk about the person that God ordains to rule over, to to extend his rule over the whole world, from Adam through Israel, through David, and ultimately through David's son, the Messiah, the Christ, who will manifest God's stewardship reign over the whole world. That's the plot line from Genesis to Revelation. Who is going to be this one who's going to rule and extend God's kingdom? But not only that, it's the son of the living God. This is, as Matthew unfolds, it's not just that Jesus has that functional rule, but he is God the son. He is God incarnate. And so he's the, not only the functional son of God, but he is the son of God. He is the son of the living God. And imagine Peter saying that when there's all this idolatrous pagan worship in Caesarea Philippi, as opposed to all those false gods, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus answers. Now, from here on out, basically through verse 19, it's a conversation between Jesus and Peter with the other 12 disciples listening on. So the other 12 are still there, but Jesus switches to to addressing Peter specifically and particularly. He says this in verse 17, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, that's the language of beatitude. We saw that at the beginning of Sermon servant on the mount. It's not blessing Peter. It's recognizing that he is blessed. And Jesus goes on to say, why? Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. That just means Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood, why are you blessed? Why are you favored? Why are you flourishing and happy? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, that I'm the Christ, but my Father who is in heaven. You're blessed, you're happy, you're flourishing, because God revealed this confession that you just made. It wasn't by any human means, it was by God revealing it to you. And then we go on, and this is where, in verses 18 and 19, we get the beginnings and understanding of what the church is, what it's supposed to be. Verse 18, and I tell you. Now, really, what the, the grammar in this sentence it's very clear in the original, it's matching what, Jesus, uh, what, what Peter's declaration was. So Peter said, you're the Christ, and this statement that Jesus is about to say parallels that statement, and you'll see it in the language. And I tell you, you are Peter. You're the Christ, therefore, what is Jesus saying? You're Peter. Now, Peter uh, is, uh, probably was a name that was around at that time, but Peter, it's, it's also common now, it just means stone right? You're a, ro- you're a rock. Could be an isolated rock, could be a big rock, could be a small rock. It has a range of meaning, but he's saying you're a rock. You're a stone. You're the Christ. That's what you just said, Peter. So therefore, I'm calling you a stone. And we go on, and on this rock, now that's a different word for rock. It's the word Petra. Jesus called Peter Petros, and But Jesus switches language, says on this rock, and now the rock he's talking about is like a massive bedrock, okay? So this is different than a Petros. This is bigger than a Petros, okay? But notice what he says. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, let's focus in on Jesus is gonna build something. Now, immediately when you hear that language that Jesus is gonna build something, and the fact that he was just declared by Peter and Jesus acknowledges that he's right, uh, that you're the Christ, and the Christ is the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant. Uh, we're not going to go there, but it reminds us of Second Samuel seven and that promise. the The reason that God gave David the Davidic covenant is because David wanted to build God a house. He wanted to build God a temple. And God basically says, you know, David, no, you're not going to build me a house, a temple. I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty, a dynasty, like the uh, house of a ruler. And he not only says that, promising the Messiah, but he also says this, and one of your sons is going to build me a house, back to temple. So one of the marks of the ultimate Davidic king, you saw a forerunner of it in Solomon, but the ultimate Davidic king, and as the Old Testament unfolds, this is seen, the ultimate Davidic king, the Messiah, is going to build a temple. And that's what Jesus is pulling on right here. He's saying, I'm going to build a temple. But notice what this temple is composed of. I'm going to build my church. Now, we're used to the word church, we hear the word church, we have all sorts of conceptions of the word church. Literally, the Greek word means assembly, an assembly, like even a political assembly. Like in Acts, you see where a crowd will gather together, they'll assemble um, to talk to the magistrates or something like that. It's an assembly, and it has even political overtones. And so what we see here is Jesus is saying, I'm going to build an assembly now, the other background to this idea of assembly, it's not just an assembly of people, that's enough, but it also has an Old Testament connotation. You see, Israel at the mount, foot of Mount Sinai, after they've been rescued from, ex, uh, from, from the Exodus, they've been brought out from Egypt, and it, that day is called the Day of Assembly. And when you, the whole nation gathered together at the temple or the tabernacle, that was called the assembly, the assembly of God. And so what Jesus is saying here is, I'm going to build an assembly. But notice what he says. He says, I'm going to build my assembly. There's a shift. There's a change. And really, as we've already seen in Matthew, there's a shift coming from Old Covenant to New Covenant. The Old Covenant people, those who are at Mount, uh, that that receive the covenant at Mount Sinai, that was God's assembly, and still is God's assembly, but now it's the Messiah's assembly that he's building, and it's going to come in the context of a new covenant, because the ultimate Davidic king, the Messiah, is the new covenant mediator. So this is the new covenant assembly he is making. Uh, who, who gets to be in this assembly? Well, what we're going to see, uh, well, well, he, he fills out that picture with the rock language. Peter is called a stone. Why? Because he confessed Jesus to be who he is, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And essentially what Peter, uh, uh, Jesus said is, because you said that, you're a stone, a stone going in my temple. And on this rock, this massive rock, what's the massive rock he's talking about? Uh, We don't have time to get into all of it. Uh, We'll we'll get to Matthew 16 eventually in our exposition through Matthew. But I believe it's Jesus and the apostles because that's the imagery that the rest of the New Testament picks up. On Jesus as the cornerstone and his apostles is the foundation for the church he is building. I'm going to build it. How is he going to build it? Well, part of it is going to be people who confess Jesus to be the Christ, who repent, who, entrust, uh, who turn allegiance from sin and self, who swear allegiance to the Christ in faith, entrusting themselves to him to rescue them from their sin. On the Christ and on the rest of the apostles, he's going to build his assembly So what we have right now is the new covenant assembly. He's building a temple, but the temple is composed of people, and that's going to be the temple that the Messiah is going to build. And he goes on, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The gates of Hades are just the gates of death. That's what that means, the gates of death. Shall not prevail against it. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's think about the imagery here. You've got these people, right? That not prevail against what? Not prevail against the church, the church that is composed of people. It's an assembly of people. So the gates of death are not going to prevail over this assembly of people. And why not? Why not? Why won't the gates of... What does that even mean? Well, I think what it means, and we get some help from earlier in Matthew, and you might already be thinking this direction. There's another place in Matthew where it talks about gates, and it talks about building on rocks. And that place is Matthew 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and it actually helps us understand this passage and understand the church and what is going to be said in verse 19 a great, great deal. So turn back to Matthew 7, and you remember the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is we could characterize it as this. This is what kingdom righteousness looks like. It's addressed to disciples, those who have already repented and entrusted themselves to Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is addressed to disciples. And so it's very interesting. Uh, Jesus says throughout the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, here's what following me looks like. Here's what it looks like. If you're gonna follow me, if you're gonna confess me, this is what your life is going to look like. And I'm gonna read for you Matthew 7, 12 through um, sorry, Matthew 7, 13 through 27, and I want you to listen for the similar language because it's going to help us understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 16. Now, this is Jesus' conclusion in the Sermon on the Mount. He's tying everything up. And he says this, Enter by the narrow gate. This is the only other time that gate is mentioned in the book of Matthew other than in Matthew 16. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So remember what we said about this. There's the narrow road of living, following Jesus in accord with the Sermon on the Mount that leads to the end of life, and there's two gates. If you're on the narrow road, you're going to enter by the narrow gate into life, into the kingdom of heaven or everyone else, there's only two roads, is this broad path that leads up to a broad gate that leads to what? Destruction. And he says here, the, notice the, the, the way is hard that leads to life, life versus death, life, gates of life versus gates of death, gates of the kingdom of heaven versus gates of Hades. He's talking about the same reality. Now, it's interesting, Jesus also warns about false teachers in Matthew 16. If you were to look at Matthew 16 earlier in the chapter, he says, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. He's talking about similar realities. We go on, verse 21 in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who confesses, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The will that looks like the rest of what he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who, then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. He'll built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Jesus and his teaching. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. How do you make it as a disciple? It's not enough to say, Lord, Lord. It's not enough to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You live and you follow the king with your whole life. And that's how you enter the gate of life into heaven, into the kingdom of heaven on earth, the kingdom from heaven that will encompass the whole earth versus the gate of death and Hades. Jesus is talking about the same reality in Matthew 16. So when he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my assembly of people, he's saying, those who truly entrust themselves to me those who are repenters, those who are true confessors like Peter, true disciples like Peter, they're going to be stones and they're not going to enter at the end of life the gates of Hades, they're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So the gates of, heaven, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And he goes on, Jesus goes on. Now he's building this assembly, this new covenant assembly that is a temple. The uh, the gates of hell, the gates of death are not gonna prevail against it. And he goes on, I will give to you. Now the you there is singular, he's talking to Peter. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, isn't that very clear and transparent about what's going on? Take some thinking. But actually, Matthew 7 helps us out a lot. Matthew 7 helps us out a lot. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, who had the keys before he's handing them off to Peter? Jesus did. Jesus has the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And didn't he just use them at the end of Matthew 7? He said, listen, let me tell you who's going to enter my kingdom. If you follow me, and do what I tell you to do. Not only confess and say, Lord, Lord, but do what I tell you to do. And now he's handing off the keys to Peter, like a steward, like a steward. And the idea is, Peter, you get to, as a steward, in the same sort of way that I just, like in Matthew 7, wielded the keys and said, you're in, you're out, because of how you live, you, Peter, and the re- by extension, the rest of the apostles, you've been with me as my disciples. I've been training you to be fishers of men. I've been training you all this time. You've seen, you've heard my teaching, and now I'm entrusting the keys to you. As a stewardship. As a stewardship. What's the power of the keys? Well, he explains that. It's explained in the next phrases, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And you're like, what is that? What is binding and loosing? What's this business going on about? Well, since we've already made a connection to Matthew 7, we are, it, we're helped out quite a bit because Matthew 7 in turn goes back to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. And Matthew 5, verse 17, is really kind of the start of Jesus' main section of the sermon. You remember this. We went through this a few months ago. And I want you to listen for some familiar language. Matthew 5, 17. "'Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished.' Therefore, whoever relaxes... Now, the word relaxes is the same word loose that we have in Matthew 16. So you could read it this way. Therefore, whoever looses one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. See, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's open things in the context in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 7. They're opening the kingdom of heaven, which the foundation of that is in Matthew 5. And what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about loosing commandments or hearing and obeying commandments. And then he goes on to illustrate what that looks like. Uh, he talks about here's what the law is, but here's don't obey it like the scribes and Pharisees. Who are binding and loosing in this way, listen to what I'm saying, and I'm binding and loosing in this way. Or to put it like this, if we were to summarize what is this key binding and loosing sort of idea, binding is making a judgment about a commandment and the necessity of an application for someone. That's what this Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what the scribes and Pharisees were doing in his day. Loosing is making a a judgment about a commandment and the non-necessity of its application on someone. That's how this language was used in Jesus' day. Binding is making a judgment about a commandment and the necessity of an application for someone, which is exactly what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. Loosing is making a judgment about a commandment and the non-necessity of its application from someone. So it's teaching paired with application and making a judgment call about it that it's binding on someone else. Now, notice what happens in Matthew 16. Peter is given the keys. By extension, the rest of the apostles are given the keys. And they have the authority, the stewardship authority given to them by Jesus Christ to do the exact same thing that he did. Not willy-nilly, like... Not willy-nilly, like, I can just tell you whatever and you have to obey it because I'm Peter and the rest of the apostles, but as a stewardship as a stewardship in line with what Jesus has said of, if you want to follow me, if you're going to confess me to be the Christ, here's what it looks like to live. And he just said, Jesus just gave Peter and the rest of the apostles as the foundation of the New Testament assembly and temple, the authority to make judgments on behalf of heaven That's what it says. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, heaven is backing your pronouncements. Again, not willy-nilly, like whatever, but in accord. And as long as it's in line with Jesus teaching as a steward, right? That's what a steward does, acts on behalf of the master. Then you have the backing of heaven. You have the authority of heaven at your back. Now you're like, well, how does this all have to do with the universal church? That was our question, right? Well, we could even ask a question like this. How does Jesus build his assembly through all of this? Well, let's put it together. Those who confess Jesus as the Christ become stones in the temple assembly like Peter But as Jesus made very clear at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, confession with words is not enough. True confession and discipleship will result in obeying Jesus' commands. Jesus gave Peter and, by extension, the apostles the power of the keys to teach about Jesus, his commands, and make authoritative judgments about how those commands applied to the assembly so that The disciples, those who are claiming to confess and follow Jesus, so that they can enter the kingdom of heaven, they can enter life and not be overcome with the gates of death. That's how this works. How did that play itself out? Well, that's the New Testament. The New Testament was the apostles wielding the keys of the kingdom, backed by heaven, giving us teaching about, here's how to live as a disciple of Christ. And even early things like we see in, say, Acts 5, when Peter calls out Ananias and Sapphira, it says, you've not lied to men but to God, and they're struck dead. He's wielding the keys. He's wielding the keys, the stewardship authority that was given to him by Jesus. That's the beginning of the picture of the church in the New Testament, and it's the same picture that gets brought up again and again throughout. Turn to 1 Peter. So Peter, Jesus tells Peter this, and it would be interesting to hear Peter's kind of thinking on the church in light of what Jesus told him. Well, that happens in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. He's addressing these local churches, and he's saying this, so put away, 1 Peter 2, 1, Peter 2, 1, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants, Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if you indeed have tasted the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And again, Ephesians, you don't have to turn there, but Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, uh, the apostle uh, Paul says to Gentiles, hey, you guys were once separated from Israel. Now that dividing wall is broken down in the new covenant and Jew and Gentile together as confessors of the Messiah, we are being built together as a temple, as a priesthood, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So what is the universal church? Well, we've got a nice long definition for you on the screen. But here's what it is, and you need to hear this. This is, this is essential. The universal church is the assembly of all new covenant members who are genuine disciples of Christ. How are they disciples of Christ repenting and entrusting themselves to Jesus and his work, his death and resurrection, who are genuine disciples of Christ the King. They're not merely professors, but they're they're... They're disciples, they're followers, they're obeyers, who are genuine disciples of Christ the King, who are citizens of the kingdom from heaven, who are priests for God in the world, and who together form a temple for the display and enjoyment of the glory of God. because that's always what the temple is. That is what the universal Church. It's the assembly of all new covenant members who are genuine disciples of Christ the King, who are citizens of the kingdom from heaven, who are priests for God in the world and who together form a temple for the display and enjoyment of the glory of God. And the New Testament presents the universal church as under construction. It's still under construction. And along with that, you might ask the question, well, when do we get to see the universal church? The end, the end of time, Because in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, uh, Paul says, in talking about marriage, he says, Christ redeemed for himself a people, a bride, to present to himself. Has he presented the bride to himself yet? No, not yet. But in the future. That's what Revelation 21 talks about. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. We see this temple city come down as a bride prepared for her husband. It's the church dwelling with her husband. So you're like, when do we get to see the universal church? You can't, not yet, not until the end, when the temple is finally built and put together and assembled. But you might ask, well, can we see any manifestation of the universal church at this time? How is it manifested? How do people know? How do people draw near to this temple? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked that. Because that leads us to the next part. What is the local church? What is the local church? And the local church is the answer to that question. And let me prove that to you. Turn to Revelation 1. So the universal church, the new covenant assembly, the temple assembly of people, it's built up of people, is going to be that temple. Now turn to Revelation We're going to read a good piece here, but I want you to see this. Revelation 1-4. Let's start there. So we talk about, in the New Testament, we talk about the universal church, and it's often referred to, and we've talked about it. But then we get this language like we see here in Revelation 1-4. John, this is the Apostle John, to the seven churches, plural. Wait a minute, I thought we had one church. But the New Testament, just as here, talks about legitimate plurality of churches in specific locations. John, to the seven churches who are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. I think that's the, seven, the, the one Holy Spirit energizing the seven local churches. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, very political language. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, like lampstands that you find in the temple. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, like a high priest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have Seen those that are and those that are about to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Which means what? That local churches are manifestations of the end-time temple now. The lampstand in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple was a stylized tree of life and the lamps were supposed to represent God's glory displayed. And so what Jesus is saying is, my local churches are lampstands. My local churches display the glory of God. My local churches are what is giving a piece and a picture of the end-time reality of the universal church. Or, to use an analogy that I think is very helpful, the local church is an embassy of the future. See, one day Jesus will reign over this entire planet from a throne in Jerusalem, and his people will be gathered around him as the citizens of that kingdom, enjoying and basking in the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what you see at the end of Revelation— And he's saying, you want to see a piece of that now? You go to the local church. You go to it like an embassy. And Jesus loves his church. He gave himself for her. Ephesians 5. But see this. Then Jesus starts directly addressing a local church. Look at this. We won't read all of them, but we'll read the one to Ephesus. Revelation 2, one to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He walks among his local churches like a high priest. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Meaning what? What is Jesus doing? He not only walks among his local churches, he knows exactly what's going on in each one. He knows people by name. Uh, You can read that as you see the rest of him. He loves them and he wants them to love him back. And if they're not faithful, if they abuse the stewardship that was given to him, he says, I'll take your lampstand away, which is a frightfully horrible reality because You have a privilege as a local church to be a lampstand, manifest, you're an embassy of the future, displaying in measure the glory of God in the gathering of an assembly oriented around him who freed us from our sins by his blood. This is the local church. And what's amazing is that just in a similar way that Christ gave authority to the universal church, to the apostles. He gives authority to a local church. Turn back to Matthew, Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 15. It's the only other time that the, you, that the church is mentioned in the Gospels. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, meaning a recognized local church, a local assembly. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The two or three is not about prayer meetings. The two or three is about two or three witnesses that, in this context, backing up the claim of church discipline it's the idea of assembling in jesus name that's what the local church is doing but notice what jesus is doing he gives the local church the power of the keys to do what to affirm or to deny that someone is a disciple In this case, it's the reverse, right? It's the back door. You're claiming to follow Christ, uh, but you're not living as a disciple. You're not walking that line. And as a steward, the local church has the keys to be able to enforce and say, sorry, according to what Jesus has told us in the scriptures, according to what the apostles told us in the scriptures, you are not walking as a disciple. We have to remove our affirmation like an embassy from the future, that you are a disciple. If you keep going on the course that you're going, you're not going to make it to the kingdom of heaven. Now, the goal of that is repentance. We want people to repent so that they are brought in, so that their discipleship is affirmed, so that together as an embassy, we can affirm one another's discipleship which is how we could define a local church. Now, this one wasn't my own creation. This is from a book called Rediscover Church by, just came out this last year, last few months, really, by Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen. A really good little book. Some of you have, I gave it out and some of you have read it. It's really good. So if you need help with some of these concepts, it's a really good little book to read. But they define a local church like this, and I think it's really good based on what we've said. A local church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly assembly, embassy Of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news. That's our mission. We proclaim the good news of Christ. We proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances and display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world following the teaching and example of elders. Let me read it one more time. It's a mouthful, but it's so rich. A local church is a group of Christians who assemble. As a local as an earthly assembly of christ an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world following the teaching and example of uh, of the elders that's a local church and as we close out for today. The call is to love the universal and the local church because Jesus does. It's that simple. Jesus loves his universal church and he loves his local church. He loves this local church. And that is evident because he's at work in you. You love one another. You are unified. You are hungry for the scriptures. You love the church because you love Jesus. Jesus. Jesus works in the local church. God's glory is manifested in the local church. The Spirit's power is experienced in the local church. And you're like, really? We just come and we get together, and we sing songs, and we we hear somebody speak for a long time, um, and we eat some little crackers that don't taste very good and some juice. That looks very ordinary. The foolish things in men's eyes are wisdom from God, right? The mundane things that we do in a local church are displaying God's glory, and God is pleased when we do it right, when we do it for his honor. And because what Jesus has said, you need to not only see this is where God is working in the local church, but you need to recognize along with that the stewardship authority that Jesus has given to the local church to speak on behalf of heaven based on the scriptures. Again, it's not willy nilly, I get to say whatever. It's a stewardship authority that Jesus can and will take away if we are unfaithful. So it's this. What I'm calling you to is to elevate your view of the local church because Jesus has a high view of it and a high calling. For it. And it relates to the gospel. We call people to repentance, to turn your allegiance from sin and self and entrust yourself to Jesus and become his disciple and join us into the local church. We're walking together, we're trying to work together side by side to proclaim him, but we're also helping each other to grow in our discipleship as we seek to make it to the end. It's a means of grace to grow in your discipleship as a Christian. The call when we share the gospel with someone is become a disciple and trust yourself to Jesus, and then be baptized, be brought into the local church. Have your discipleship ratified and overseen by the local church. And what we're going to see in the coming weeks is that's integrally related to the ordinances, to baptism, to Lord's Supper, and to discipline. So even as we transition now to a time of communion, what is going on here is communion is the new covenant sign. It's the sign of the new covenant. We said that the church is the new covenant assembly. Taking of the elements is saying, yeah, we're part of that assembly. I'm in. And not just I'm in, but I'm in it with you all. With everyone who's taking the elements we say it this way, we've said it before, when you take communion, you look back to the cross and the price price that Jesus has paid for his people, for his bride, not just individuals, but a bride together, a collective entity. And then as people come forward, we, we have come forward now, and I love that because it displays, here's the people. That Christ has purchased. Look around you. Don't just look back to what Christ did, but also look at its present results and the people that Christ has purchased. And then as we're an embassy of the future, we look forward. We look forward to when the full kingdom is here, and we get to sit, like the song said that we sung this morning, at the table of the king in bonds of love. We look back, we look around, we look forward. But as we've said before, this is Holy. It is uncommon, not because it's juice and bread, but because of what it signifies, what Christ has done and paid to purchase a people for himself. And so we don't partake lightly. We don't partake. If I'm not a Christian, I haven't sworn allegiance to Christ. That's you're blaspheming God and God will, God will deal with you. If you're walking on unrepentant sin, you're mocking the Savior who you're claiming bought you, and you don't partake. You would just mock him. Or if you have disunity with someone else in the body, you don't partake because this one bread makes us many, the many into one, the one people. And so you work to solve disunity before you partake in a worthy manner. And even even this issue of parents with kids, we want to be very careful. Have the kids, are they walking as disciples of Christ? So with, but with those warnings in place, we also partake, not just warning, it's a holy thing, but it's also a joyful thing. It's a joyful thing to see what Christ has done, dying for his people, resurrecting for their sakes, bringing them into one, diverse people from all sorts of walks of life that would have nothing in common apart from God's grace. So we partake joyfully. I'm going to transition down here front. Uh, One of the deacons will start dismissing from the back and dismissing rows and come up front. You'll grab two cups, one stacked on top of another, one with bread, one with juice. Please wait to take it until we've all gotten it. think about that. Look back, look around, and look forward based on this as our new covenant sign, based on the local assembly that we are as the local church.